Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, we're revisiting a conversation I had with Tim Clark in 2019. Tim is a Brooklyn native who's spent most of his life in New York City. After several years of competing with some of the best endurance athletes in the world as a professional triathlete, Tim became an FDNY firefighter in June of 2015. In 2020, he made a life-altering decision to join the United States military. As both an athlete and a coach, Tim gained extensive experience using biometric heart rate data as a tool for training and racing. His experience has given him unique insight into what happens inside the human body at real-world fires and emergencies, as well as during workouts and recovery. Tim is a graduate of the University of Delaware and serves as a human performance data analyst for Leadership Under Fire. Please enjoy a brief update from Tim about his latest endeavors, followed by our original conversation, which is as timely as ever. Tim, I am so excited to catch up with you today. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Patty. It's a pleasure to be back. So do you mind telling listeners what you've been up to since the last time we had you on the podcast? I've had an eventful few years since, uh, since we met in December of 2019. April of 2020, I enlisted in the United States Air Force, pursuing a career in uh, Air Force Special Warfare. Uh, so it's been a, a pretty big change. Uh, I'm in the Air National Guard, so I'm uh, on active duty orders at the moment, but uh, I will be a reservist, so I will be maintaining my position with the New York City Fire Department as well. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Very happy for you and very proud. Do you mind sharing why you wanted to join the military and what your intentions are? The military, so I come from like a military family. My father was a Marine. My grandfather was in the first wave in Normandy, you know, during World War II. So it's just something that I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for. Uh, And for any number of reasons, it was just something I didn't do. I always wanted to do it. I always had a tremendous amount of respect for it, but I just never did it. Uh, and my, my reasoning, you know, at different courses of my life was always like, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. What I eventually learned and what probably took me too long to learn was that there isn't a right time. And so at some point you just have to make a decision and tear the bandaid off. It's, if it's something you want to do, if you want to pursue a life of service and, and specifically to the military, you just have to kind of jump in with both feet and uh, <laughs> worry about how it goes later. You know, so that was, that was something I just always wanted to do. And I was, time was very literally running out for me. Uh, and so I had to make a decision. And so in April of 2020, COVID had kind of shut down the world. And I decided that uh, I think it was, it was the right time for me to join. I want to talk about the timing of joining the military in just a second. But if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about that personal story and your why, because I happen to know that that story about your grandfather serving in the military was a huge like driving 
force behind your athletic career as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was uh, an enormous hero in my life. Mm-hmm. Whenever, uh, and some, some days I was more successful at this than others, but whenever I would do, you know, these long four, five, six, seven hour stationary bike rides, sometimes uh, I would have a, a picture of him just right in my line of vision, because whenever it started to really suck, whenever it started to really get hard, I looked at him and thought, this man went through some of the most horrendous things a human can go through and not only came through it, but brought with him like a humor and just a very happy disposition. He just was a true warrior, a true human, a true inspiration. Mm -hmm. And so he was just somebody that I always looked up toward throughout my athletic career and now throughout my professional career. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Grandpa Kepner. Everyone called him Spike. Why? As the legend has it, I mean, his stories were kind of always crazy, but uh, as legend has, he was a really good baseball player. And so in the late 1930s, early 1940s, uh, again, as the story goes, he was supposed to be drafted by the New York Giants baseball team. And he always wore big, thick spikes on his cleats. And so that he just kind of got the nickname Spike. Uh, but instead of being drafted by the, uh, by the New York Giants, he got drafted by the, the U.S. Army. So That's his so claim cool. to fame was while in the Army, he hit a double off of Lefty Grove while stationed in some place. You know, like, there, I don't know, there was some professional sports team that rolled through and the other team didn't show up. So they played the local U.S. Army. And he, he took a, uh, he whacked a double off Lefty Grove back in 1940, <laughs> whatever. I love these stories. That's awesome. <laughs> Right. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So now, do you mind talking about your experience of joining the Air Force Special Warfare Community at your age? Yeah, I wasn't young when when, uh, I first enlisted. I I had always been attracted to uh, pararescue jumpers, Air Force PJs. uh, And so that was what kind of drew my attention toward Air Force Special Warfare, which I think actually happens for a lot of people. Uh, they're they're kind of like the shiniest of the four different career fields. Uh, career fields being, you know, pararescue jumpers, combat controllers, uh, special reconnaissance, and uh, what I eventually ended up picking was tactical air control party. And so, uh, the more research I did, the more I started to learn about these other career fields, and the more I started to think that maybe one of these other things might be a better fit for me than than pararescue jumping. PJs, obviously, you know, it, it would have been a perfect complement to my firefighting career. But just on a personal level, I wanted I wanted an entirely different skill set. I wanted to do something that uh, was dealing with incredibly complex problem sets, and TACP seemed to seem to check all those boxes. For those that don't know, Tactical Air Patrol Party members are Air Force liaisons that embed with other military entities, uh, and they are the liaison between the ground forces and the uh, the Air Force in the sky. So they're the ones calling in airstrikes. They're the ones deconflicting aircraft. They're the ones that are figuring out all of the the fires logistics that comes with modern warfare. Excellent. Without having to get too far into the weeds about the process, what was the beginning of this training like for you? And let's be clear about like how old you are and how old are the other people that are in the training with you? So my decision was I wanted to do the job, right? I went in as an enlisted member, not in the officer ranks, because I wanted to be, you know, the guy with the boots on the ground. Uh, and so I, I decided to enlist, which meant I had to go through Air Force basic training and I had to, you know, start from the, the very, very ground up. I entered basic military training at 38 years old and was surrounded by a lot of 18-year-olds. 
Now that being said, I should I should mention that there were a fair number of people in their late twenties, early thirties, and one other guy actually in my BMT flight that was uh, thirty eight years old. And I think Air Force Special Warfare in particular attracts a wide range of people. You know, everyone was just incredible, incredible people to be around. Whether they were eighteen or thirty eight, these were people that wanted to do something special and wanted to do something difficult. You know, um, not all of them have been successful in this process thus far, but the fact that they were there and willing to step to the plate, especially at 18 years old, is something that I found particularly inspiring. Awesome. Thank you for painting that picture for us. Right. <laughs> so what's something you've learned about leadership during this experience? You know, the, the term, if you're a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? So I view the world through the lens of endurance and rightly or wrongly, I see everything as a factor of of endurance. And so <laughs> I think it's, it's probably where I can lend my biggest insight, but it's probably also my biggest blind side. But what I've noticed is that in these career fields, you attract type A sort of people that want to be not only in charge, but they want to be the person making decisions. They want to be involved in the decision-making process. And so especially when you get a new group of people working together at any different phase of this process, you have a lot of voices that are trying to be heard. And it creates a lot of confusion and it creates uh, you know, a lot of misinformation and misdirection. And what I've noticed is that as time goes on, a lot of those voices tend to fade away. And so what I've noticed is like the endurance of leadership in that not only do you need to have like the, the mental endurance, but the physical endurance to maintain that energy level as time wears on. And so as we're getting physically beat down, as we're getting mentally beat down, there are certain voices that just stay up there. They stay high. That's that you can still hear that are still making decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I've been very impressed with those people uh, along the way, especially when there isn't any obvious uh, ranking person in the group. You know, there, there's just a lot of voices that are that are trying to make decisions. And it's the people that have the, the most endurance, both, again, physical and mental that end up being in charge at the end of the day. Mm. I think there's so much to digest there. So I'm just going to leave it at that <laughs> and move on to the next question, which is what have you learned about human performance or human nature during this experience? For me, it was just kind of a reminder that change is good in terms of human nature. Like every time you decide to do something different and the more different it is, the more it exposes your own weaknesses. And so for me, like, again, just starting from, you know, I went from being an athlete to starting over in the New York City Fire Department, which exposed a bunch of my, bunch of my weaknesses. And then I went from being relatively comfortable in the firehouse to then joining the military, which one, exposed some of the same weaknesses that I had before, but exposed some other new ones. And so from a human nature standpoint, this process has just taught me that change is good and that sometimes you need change. And I'm not saying you need to like throw a hand grenade into your life every now and then just if you, if you can, I mean, maybe you do, but, uh, but, uh, I feel like that's what I do. <laughs> that made me chuckle. <laughs> I, it, it's just, I mean, you, like you, you can probably speak to this as well. I, and most people can probably speak to this. It's just that every time you try something new, every time you change jobs, every time you go somewhere, every time you get out of your comfort zone, you're going to learn something new about yourself. And this took me way, way outside of my comfort zone. And I've learned a ton of things that some of which, you know, again, were just reminders of things I already knew and some of which were, you know, like slap in the face, like, oh, all right, let's, <laughs> let's work on that. 
I actually, I just started reading a book and I'm going to go grab it because I'm going to read you this quote because it's so on point. And I took a screenshot of it and I sent it to my friend because I was like, well, (laughs) this is speaking to me. Okay, it says, for a seed to achieve its greatest expression, it must come completely undone. The shell cracks, its insides come out and everything changes. To someone who doesn't understand growth, it would look like complete destruction. I like that. That's pretty good. But I digress. <laughs> I like it. Okay. And then last but not least, what's something you've learned about yourself? Again, kind of in keeping with the whole, you know, change is, is important to you. Uh, one of the things that, that I'm learning is just to just remember to have, have confidence in myself. You know, you go into these uncertainties, right? These different events that we have coming up that we hear about. That's like a specter kind of waiting for us. And one thing that I've learned is that the anticipation of the events tend to be way worse than the events themselves. And so, right. you know, the, the first few weeks of my current school that I'm in were pretty rough, right? And what I figured out was like the hour leading up to the rough parts, the quote unquote rough parts was worse than the rough parts. Right. And so what I needed to take with me, I think, was just more confidence in myself. Like if you've done the work, if you've done the preparation, like, don't be so nervous. Like you can get through it. Like you've done hard things before. Just remember that you've done those things before and stop, you know, driving yourself crazy with anxiety leading into these events. Just be confident and know that you're going to get through it. And so I think that there's this, uh, it's kind of like the York Dotson curve. Like you want just enough anxiety to make sure you're checking all the boxes, but you don't want to be overwhelmed with it. And so you kind of have to, to match your anxiety level with your confidence level. And it's a, it's a, it's a tricky little potion to try to get right. But if you do get it right, it makes this process way easier. As I learned that there are days I did it well, there are days I did it not so well. Uh, And so that's just something I'm working on. Just, you know, have, have faith in your abilities. And again, as long as you've done the work, as long as you've prepared the way you're supposed to prepare, then everything's going to be just fine. Yeah. I think all of that is much easier said than done. Right. But The whole point is to be present and to be mindful and just tackle what's in front of you when it's in front of you. Of course, which takes practice, which again, if you're, if you're in a position that's super comfortable, you're not going to get those repetitions, whether it's, you know, changing jobs, changing positions within the job, trying out a new sport, trying out a new, whatever, whatever those things are, those are the the repetitions that you need to draw from that confidence. Otherwise you're not going to have it. Right. I could go on and on and speak to you all morning, but for now, is there anything else you want to add? I say during the episode, you know, uh, uh, fitness is an experiment on yourself. So Mm -hmm. to anyone listening right now, just keep running that experiment. Keep trying, keep testing your body, keep measuring the metrics Mm -hmm. that'll uh, help you decipher what is and is is not working. Uh, So just keep running that experiment. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to catch up with you again in the future, Tim. We'll have you back on the podcast for a longer interview, but I know you have to get back to some important things right now. So thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for having me. And uh, I look forward to hearing it again. Before we dive into biometric data, let's explore your background a bit. Sure, let's do it. So where are you from? Uh, From Brooklyn, New York, born and raised. 
And can you tell us a little bit about your childhood, your upbringing? Were you always athletic, always driven to the fire service? Well, first, yes. I mean, like any Brooklyn kid, I was engaged in all sorts of CYO sports mm-hmm. and anything, you know, 68th Precinct Baseball and stuff, whatever <laughs> whatever the local organizations were, were, whatever the sporting events that the local organizations were holding, my, my parents made sure we, me and my brothers were, were involved. Uh, as far as the fire service, my uh, I, have a, I have a long-standing history with the fire service. My great 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 grandfather was one of the first ever paid New York City firefighters. Oh wow! And uh, we've been all cops and firefighters since the since the potato famine. So it's uh, ever since we started coming to the country, we've been cops and fires, all, f- cops and firefighters all down the line. Mm-hmm. You know, we've always had like a kindred connection. I feel like because I'm originally from Staten Island and come from a long line. I'm of... Sorry to hear that. That's too. Well, hard. listen, right across <laughs> the bridge. <laughs> um, and my great grandfather was a New York City firefighter, and then my grandfather was a firefighter. So, yeah, there's a there's when when you grow up in those kinds of areas, that's the kind of uh, mm-hmm. pedigree you tend to have. And then where'd you go to college? The University of Delaware. How'd you end up there? For whatever reason, uh, people, when I was looking at colleges, started just recommending it. And when I went to visit it, it was probably one of the most, and remains to this day, one of the most like bucolic, sort of beautiful <laughs> campuses I've yeah. ever seen. And it was just not a city. Like mm-hmm. it didn't, it didn't have a city vibe. You know, it just felt very uh, red brick colonial sort of architecture, and it just didn't have a big city Brooklyn type feel. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I saw it, I said, I want to go here. So you spent time as a competitive endurance athlete. How did that come to be? Prior to the fire service, I was a bartender for 10 years. That's another thing we have. Yeah, that's, again, when you grow up in those areas, you get the the same kinds of uh, professions coming out of there. But I transitioned from one to the other. I backed away from the microphone when I said that, too. I almost hit a little bit. (laughs) Right. You can learn a lot from that from that profession. That that said, it's a it's a pretty crazy job, and and it doesn't lend itself to uh, a lot of structure. And so it was. Uh, I, I I found myself going down paths I didn't particularly enjoy. And so mm-hmm. uh, a series of people, starting with my brother and ending with uh, what would eventually become my coach Tara Rash, uh, I kind of started to take me under their wing and to show me that maybe you know instead of going out every day after work with mm-hmm. friends, maybe going out you know to the swim or bike or run or something like that is a is a more productive use of my time. So after several years of that, I finally found the structure that I really needed and kind of lended some more purpose to uh, an otherwise purposeless driven life. That sounded too sad. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you chose the right path. <laughs> exactly. And you obviously performed well, and, and that's what led you to be a competitive athlete, right? Yeah. I just, you know, I, I raced uh, three years professionally in the sport of uh, Ironman. But it was it was I got to race with some of my heroes and, mm-hmm. and it was it was really cool to toe the line with people who, you know, I, I've been following on social media or reading and in, in reading about in, in magazines and now I'm standing next to the guy on, on the starting line. Mm-hmm. These were world champions, some of them, you know, and, and and to be on the line next to them was such a was such a proud moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I never I never quite lived up to what I was hoping to do, mm-hmm. but to have been there at all was a, was a really was a really cool period of my life. I find it hard to believe that anybody listening to this podcast doesn't know what an Ironman is, but in case they don't, can you explain? It's a it's a tri- it's a very long triathlon. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a 2.4 mile swim, it's a 112 mile bike and then a 26.2 mile marathon at the end. It seemed to be a sport that my strengths were geared toward, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I got pretty good pretty fast. And, and when you see that sort of that that immediate progression, it, it's the kind of thing that makes you want to start working harder at it. And so this sort of cycle developed where, yes, I had some talent at it, but I wanted to develop that talent. I started working really hard for many years and, and started to reap the benefits of that. 
just to give our listeners really some context here, we both ran the New York City Marathon this year. I'm not going to tell them what my time was, but what was your time? Uh, I ran at 2.45 this year. Right. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I was happy with and that. And you helped the FDNY take the Mayor's Cup. We did, but a cop beat me. There was a cop out there that beat me. That's I'm gonna right. I'm gonna cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> the FDNY the FDNY as a team beat the NYPD. That's correct. Well, so yeah, so you are really um, in that really highly competitive sphere when we're talking about you know your times and relatively speaking, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess you know it's it's in the like I'm not I'm not racing at the level that I once was, but I'm happy with the 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 balance I've created for myself in in both my work and and you know athletic careers. Excellent, yeah. So when did you start coaching competitive endurance athletes? I've been coaching. I started taking on my first athletes probably five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, just initially just started adopting a lot of what I had what had been used on me and just started using it on other people. There was a learning curve there that just not because something just, just because something works for me doesn't necessarily mean it works for everyone, right. everyone else. And so as I developed more knowledge and understanding about how the body worked and how different kinds of bodies work, uh, I, I started using some of the techniques that were used on me with like heart rate data and everything else and started using those on other people. And it became a, it was just a, it's a fun little, it's a fun little side job. Definitely. And then do you have a coaching philosophy or philosophies that you can share? My philosophy is really just uh, consistency. Uh, I, I, I don't like to peg, I don't like to put any one philosophy on any one person because again, everyone's built differently and responds differently to different things. But if I had one that was kind of true throughout all the people I've helped, it's just to remain consistent. You can't go out, not every day can be a Rocky Balboa, you know, punching a bag as hard as you can for 20 minutes sort of session. Some days you need to, you need to moderate your, your activity levels. And that's the one thing that I, I think I try to bring to all my athletes from various levels, you know, just try to be consistent. The more consistent you are, the less you're gonna get hurt, the less you're gonna get burnt out, the longer you'll take that fitness with you throughout life. Mm-hmm. That was somewhat of my tactic this year at the New York City Marathon is just be consistent. And so my mantra, like the whole race was it's okay to feel good because I really didn't follow like a training <laughs> schedule going in. So just trying to pace myself the entire event, I at least finished. <laughs> to, for the listener that doesn't know, Patty is, a, is an accomplished ultra, ultra marathoner. Well, it's been a while. So. Yeah, but like 100-mile type races. Well, less than 100, but How far? 50. Okay, <laughs> we'll go 50 mile races, something I've miles. never done. But yeah, that's like a jaunt, you know? It's like a, a slow-paced event, for me anyway. Doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> no. And circling back, actually, I did hear you talk about this once before, that your bartending experience kind of lent to your endurance experience. A little bit. I, you know, the, the, in the endurance world, being on your feet is mm-hmm. the name of the game, you know? Mm-hmm. And so especially I, I was racing Ironman type races, you know, it's, those are eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hour races, depending on who you are. Right. Uh, if you can't stand for right. a certain amount of time, like how do you expect to be racing for that amount of time? And, and when I was bartending, I was standing for 30 to 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was something that I didn't, I didn't give it enough credit at the time. Uh, I used to look at it as like, man, I wish I got, I wish I could sit down more at work. I'd be a little more rested. But I think at the end of the day, it was actually hardening up my legs, and was was one of the was one of the things that helped me perform as well as I did for, for as long as I did. As soon as I heard you say that, it resonated with me. I was like, oh yeah, that makes yeah, a I, lot I, I of sense. To, I try to do that at work now sometimes, or or just in life. I just try to I try to stand. Like if if I could do something while standing, I try to do it. Just mm-hmm. again, it just hardens up the legs. Should we stand and do this podcast? <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> So the off season, we've had several members of the FDNY and fire service on the podcast, but you are what folks would consider our first junior member. 
When did you join the FDNY? I first came on in June of 2015, which means uh, I'll be hitting my five-year mark uh, mm-hmm. this this upcoming June in 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. And you explained that you come from a long line of firefighters and law enforcement officers, but what really drew you to the FDNY? I mean, that was a big one. You know, just uh, wanting to continue the, the the family tradition was a big part of that. But being able to have a job that was physical and was challenging and, and most importantly, that was important, that affected other people, that you get to help people on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. that that was important to me. And mm-hmm. so to, to, to do something that at the end of the day I could be really proud of was, mm-hmm. was important. I think matters more than any amount of money, any amount of fame or glory or anything else. So if at the end of the day, you can look yourself in the mirror and be proud of what you did, then that that, that was the reason why I did it. Sounds like balancing the karma scales. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, tri- I, I raised triathlon for such a long time. It's a pretty selfish activity. And uh, that was kind of my deal was, you know, I could be selfish now, but at, at some point that has to stop. And then once I got into the fire department, that was, that was my, that was me turning that page. So what's it like to be a junior member in the FDNY? It's a, it's, it's a mixed bag. You know, it's uh, <laughs> a lot of the senior guys, and rightfully so, look at the junior guys and, and demand a lot and, and expect you to be professional, expect you to just be a firefighter, right? And, 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 and to develop all the skills that come along with that. Uh, and it, it's hard. It's hard to do for the first few years for certain. And, and it's just been an honor to uh, be a part of that tradition, a part of that history, and to, and to have the, the senior guys that look at you to be the next thing to be mm-hmm. to be the to be a part of that line of uh, succession. And then on that note, you're involved in the FDNY's mental performance initiative which we've talked about many times on this podcast, but for listeners who maybe are just tuning in, you can go to episode 5 featuring LUF founder and president Jason Bresler to learn more. Tim, what are your thoughts on MPI as both a junior member of the FDNY and a high performer endurance athlete? As a junior member, it's been completely inspiring. The caliber of person I've gotten to spend time with has just been extraordinary, both as New York City firefighters and then just the people that they bring in to come and speak and everything. It's been uh, absolutely fantastic. One of the big ones is that I, I see people like Mickey Conboy and Jim McNamara that you've had on this podcast. I see people like them who have 50 plus years between them mm-hmm. of fire service. They're still developing. They're still growing their their craft. Right. And if, if somebody with that level of experience is still trying to get better at their job than somebody with, you know, four and a half, I still count in halves, somebody with four and a half years on the job uh, is, is required to. That's been the example that has been set through the Mental Performance Initiative. As an athlete, it's been really interesting because it, it, it has married a lot of what I knew as an athlete and a lot of the skills, a lot of the, the things I've developed as an athlete. It, it applies it to firefighting in ways that I, I hadn't quite thought about. And so it made firefighting look more like a sport to me than I had previously thought. And I I, I think it hit the nail on the head. I think it absolutely is. I think we are tactical athletes, and I think we need to treat ourselves as such. Is there any specific thing that stands out in your mind that made you pivot and and think that way, a story, a person? I know overall, but, I mean, was there like an actual moment when you were perhaps at the conference or – I'd say Jonathan Fader was a big one uh, when he was also on this podcast. You know, he came in and was just speaking in sports psychology terms that I recognize, you know, things that I've heard, things that coaches have said to me, uh, different athletic conferences that I've been to are stating all the same things about mental resiliency and the importance of all of that mm-hmm. uh, and started applying it to the to the fire department. I was like, yeah, this this makes total sense. This This absolutely fits in line with what we try to do. And to maintain that level of 
motivation. I like the way Jonathan Fader has articulated the sports psychology skills that that are applicable throughout sport and applies it to what we know about firefighting. So you brought up Lieutenant Mickey Comboy and uh, senior firefighter James McNamara and Dr. Jonathan Fader. All of them are part of the LUF network. So how has the LUF team network and programs helped you as a younger firefighter? Just having role models like that has been inspiring. But but more than that, just going to the different conferences that I've been to, you get to spend time with really highly motivated individuals, which are just my favorite kind of person to spend time with. Motivation, I think, is infectious. And so when you're around other motivated people, it elevates you to be more motivated and you know, that motivates them. Uh, but what I found at a lot of these conferences, especially in, in reference to what I've been working on with the, the biometric data, a lot of guys are willing, they wear different devices that measure heart rate and everything else. And they're always willing to contribute. I get I, Every time I go to a conference, somebody comes up to me and says, I have this data from this fire. How mm-hmm. can I help? What can I do? It's just inspiring to see people that with with no ulterior motives are, are looking to help our cause and are looking to help what leadership under fire as in general is doing and then what my small partner is you know they're they're looking to help me and so finding people like that that are just looking to help and contribute and, and drive the fire service to the next level and help help it become better than it already is is a great network of people to be a part of well thank you for sharing all of that about your background I feel like our listeners got to know you a little bit better so Now, how did you assume a role as a human performance biometrics analyst with Leadership Under Fire? Jason Bresler, he was the one who initially started collecting a lot of this data. He started to, uh, I think, look around for people that might be able to take on a little bit more responsibility with Leadership Under Fire. Uh, And I think given my background, he thought I might be a good fit. It's been really, really interesting to me to, again, apply a lot of what I know through the sporting world to apply it to my professional world. And, And the fact that I have skills that I developed prior to getting into the fire department that I can now apply to the fire department has been really, uh, has been has been just cool. So to be clear, what are biometrics and how are they used in sport? So your body undergoes physiological changes whenever you're undergoing any sort of, um, obviously whenever you're moving or exercising, your, your body's going to undergo physiological changes, but it also undergoes physiological changes during psychological events, mm-hmm. right? So if you're in a high stress environment, you're your, your body is going to react in different ways. Your core temperature is going to go up. Your palms will get sweaty. Your muscles will tighten. Your uh, Again, your heart rate will go up, things like that. The way it's used in sport is to be able to figure out w- what exactly drives my heart rate, what drives my stress levels. And then from a psychological standpoint, what tools can I use? What tools do I have mm-hmm. to control that? From a physiological standpoint, it really applies the same way we apply it in, in all sports. So endurance sports for the last 50 years has been using heart rate data specifically to help drive performance and help optimize training and all these things. Other sports are now starting to take notice of that. And I think some of these other sports might actually be a little more applicable to what we do as firefighters, but you're starting to see it in mixed martial arts and mm-hmm. rugby and, and sports like that, that realized what endurance sports had have known for a little while. They're starting to realize that it's able to apply, be applied to their respective sports. Can you give us a little bit of history on biometrics? Yeah, the, the history of biometrics is uh, is is really interesting, actually. Uh, it, the earliest uh, devices that were were being produced date back to the 1890s. They were trying to measure muscle contractions in athletes, and they would actually inject needles into the into the muscles uh, to measure relaxation of all things. I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was I don't think it was super accurate, especially after being jabbed with uh, pins and needles. But uh, it was their first attempt. There were some sporadic efforts over the next uh, fifty years or so at, at doing it, but nothing that that really uh, took hold. 
It wasn't until post-World War II when uh, the Soviet Union became really dedicated to beating the United States at the Olympics that the science behind it really started to take off. They, they were performing some really unethical experiments on the best athletes in the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, there are women today, that women powerlifters, that still grow facial hair from the, wow. the amount of testosterone that they were given during that time. It wasn't the best thing. That being said, we learned a lot about the human body and how it works. But fast forward to uh, the 1970s, professional sports teams started looking at what was going on with the Soviet athletes and thought, these guys are like superheroes. You know, <laughs> well, how do we get in on that? Their, their motivations were a lot less patriotic in nature and a lot more financial in nature. Obviously, the more championships you're winning, the more money you're going to make. But they they took what physiology and psychology, which was like the study of, of how the body works and the study of how the mind works, and they started developing sports psychology and sports physiology, which is the study of how we optimize how the body works. How do we optimize how the brain works? Uh, and that was when in the 70s, you really started to see a separation in the caliber of athletes that you had and football, basketball, hockey, baseball. There was a big trend upwards in just in, in their ability levels. And it was a large in large part to the the science that was coming out of that that era. Fast forward to the nineteen nineties, the military starts looking at what's going on in the professional right. sports world and starts thinking, how do we train our soldiers like this? How do we we want our guys to be superior athletes and how do we do it? Uh, and, and that was the advent of what then became tactical psychology and tactical physiology. How do we optimize how the body and brain works in, in tactical type of environments? And they've actually, the mil U.S. military has been fantastic. They've actually been spearheading a lot of what we know about the brain, about the body, and how, how to push things forward. Uh, and so it's just been, it's been a really fascinating history. And I think now, fast forward to 2012, Leadership Under Fire comes around, and they're starting to take what we know from the sports world, from the military tactical world, and trying to apply it to what we do as firefighters. Because again, there's no, I can't think of a sport that is as complicated as, you know, sport loosely, but that is as complicated as being a firefighter. Like we are, we are aerobic athletes that also carry around a hundred pounds worth of gear. We, we, we walk this balance between being aerobic and being anaerobic and, and to figure out how do you develop that sort of athlete mm -hmm. is, is, is a real challenge. And, and part of this whole biometric experiment is to see, well, what, what sort of physiological tolls is that taking? And, and, and how do we, how do we take that and make it better? So what are some of the wearable devices on the market today and what do they track and more importantly how are they used to enhance performance? So the in terms of devices there's there's a lot of things out there there's Fitbit there's the Aura Ring the Motive Ring which is a, like a literally a ring that you wear on your finger that can track heart rate and stuff Whoop has a device Garmin there's a, there's a lot of devices out there there's a lot of apps that can measure things like heart rate variance which we can talk about mm -hmm. there's a lot of devices out there that that all have, you know, their pluses and minuses, but anything that can track your sleep, your heart rate, your fitness level on a on a day-to-day -day basis is pretty good for what we do. It can really kind of measure not only what you're doing at a fire or what you're doing during a workout, but it can measure how hard of a day you've had, how hard of a, a week you've had, how much sleep you've gotten, what's your recovery scores, you know. It, there's a lot of devices out there that do a lot of different things depending on depending on your needs. And then based on that data, you can then make changes. Sure. I mean, let's take fires, right, first. Once we can measure what the body's undergoing in a fire, the different zones that people tend to operate in at fires, we can then target their training around that. We can break heart rate up into five different zones, zones one through five, mm -hmm. one being not very hard, five being like a maximal type effort. Uh, if we see that at fires, you know, guys spend a lot of time in zone four, we can start to adapt their training appropriately. We can use it in all the same ways that we can use it uh, in sports. So a lot of biometrics and wearables are geared for endurance athletes, but you are now taking that data and applying it to tactical athletes. 
it's really not something that was made for that purpose. No, this is I, as best we can tell. This is the the first project of the first study of its kind. It's in its infancy stages at the moment, but it's it's been a really exciting program to be a part of. No one's ever taken heart rate data from real life. Mm-hmm fires and one, try to see what's going on inside the body and then try to apply it in in some positive ways. Uh, There have been some laboratory type settings, which doesn't always capture what's happening, especially in the psychological realm, you know, because that's that's the hardest, I think, to duplicate. And you've collected and analyzed several hundred sets of event data from members of the Leadership Under Fire team at serious fires and emergencies over the past two years. So that's what you're kind of referring to. What are some of the trends that you've seen about the data specific to strain on the body? It's, it's hard to target trends because fires are just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. One fire, like it's hard to say this fire is exactly like another fire. But uh, one of the big trends that we see is the, is, is the way heat affects firefighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even so much the way heat affects you in the moment. I think it's pretty intuitive that, yes, if it's a hot day out, that your heart rate's going to go up, you're going to sweat more, there's going to be more physiological toll. The the surprising thing was how long it takes to recover from those days. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing people that that get heart rates upwards of 200 beats per minute, which is crazy. In my, in my entire athletic career, I think I can count on one hand the number of times people uh, have gotten their heart rates over 200. It's really not easy right. to do. Uh, and we have guys that have done it on multiple occasions, mm-hmm. you know. And so when once you add heat, once you add equipment, once you add uh, tools and 100 pounds worth of gear. Uh, and the, the stress. And, and, and the psychological stress right. on top of all this from going into whatever whatever situation you're heading into. It's We're seeing some huge, huge outputs in terms of the heart rate. And then again, just your ability to recover is, 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 is it could take upwards of 24 hours to recover from one fire, you know, one pretty standard run-of-the-mill fire. Uh, and, and that's been the most surprising thing for me was, yes, I expected there to be a toll from the heat. I, w- I didn't expect the recovery time to be what it was. And then speaking of psychological stress, uh, you've curated data from chief officers. So what have you learned about the effects of emotional and physiological stress for leaders and decision makers who aren't performing physically demanding tasks. We have a chief that early one morning, uh, a call came in for uh, reports of people trapped. He, in the first few minutes of after the run came in, uh, had achieved a heart rate of 171 beats per minute. This is uh, a battalion chief that wasn't putting on any gear. Mm -hmm. He wasn't carrying any tools. It wasn't a particularly hot day. He went from roughly 50 beats per minute to 171 beats per minute in just a few minutes. And he actually told me later that he he's went through the MPI program, has heard a lot about these uh, these mental performance skills, like mm-hmm. the tools that you can use to kind of calm yourself down. And what I thought was a really neat trick that he had is he keeps a bottle of water on uh, the, the chief's rig with him. And he, while responding, he felt his heart rate, he felt his heart beating out of his chest. He was super nervous, reports of kids trapped, you know, that's, that's, that, that'll get anyone's heart going. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took a sip of water and just, you saw his heart rate just come right back down. Once he arrived on scene, it turns out that it was some erroneous reports that weren't actually kids trapped, but he was able to take some of the skills they learned through the mental performance initiative mm-hmm. and apply them in, in a real life setting. And so you could, you could, you could track how, how his heart rate responded to both the stress of the moment and then 
to his answer to the stress of the moment. That's amazing. It's it's fascinating data. It's it's fascinating to watch, fascinating to see, and it's fascinating again to see these these people with tremendous amounts of experience to see one that they they still respond the same way that a junior guy might respond to certain situations, but they just have the wherewithal and the and the and the mental skills to to cope with them. So you gave us two specific examples, but what are the strain trends when we're looking at individual events and then cumulative shift tours? We see interesting data, you know, we, we have a guy, so some of these devices are able to measure the, the amount of strain that you've had in, in your day in a 24-hour period. Uh, we had a guy and a very experienced firefighter, goes to a lot of fires, went to, he ended up going to five fires in one day. Mm-hmm. He achieved stress scores of upwards of, of 18 points, which is out of 21. So it's a very high, high stress day. Admittedly, in his, in, his, in his own words, said at the fifth fire, he was just so physically drained, so physically tired that uh, at the fifth fire, he ended up making a, a really bad mistake. He ended up forcing a door and just forgot to put his gloves on, which is something that he would never do, right? The room ended up flashing over on him and he burnt his hands. Mm-hmm. You know, he's okay and that's and that's a great thing. But but hearing it from him, again, this a guy that goes through a lot of fires that is very experienced, that is very fit and and doesn't make these kinds of mistakes usually – at the end of a at the end of his fifth fire was just so physically exhausted that he was started making just started making simple mistakes. We don't go to fires every day and we certainly don't go to five fires every day. But then to compare that to another firefighter, a senior guy in one of the busiest ladder companies in the country, to compare his data, his his daily stress score to a day in a busy firehouse where a guy didn't go to any fires but went on you know, upwards of 24 runs in 24 hours to see that he actually achieved a higher stress score than the guy that went to five fires in one day. And so to kind of compare and contrast, you know, this guy is making mistakes after going to five fires. This guy over here is 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 achieving larger daily stress scores without having gone to a fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be able to compare and contrast and see and see those two things is really interesting. I I wouldn't guess that you know, 24 runs in 24 hours, all routine in nature, nothing st- super stressful. There were no fires. There were no no pins, no traps, nothing that was psychologically stressful of the day, just all stuck elevators, gas leaks, and the things that we do on a daily basis to see that that sort of day can lead to similar, if not higher stress scores than going to five fires in a day. It's just, it's a, it's a fascinating trend to see that simply going to fires isn't the thing that taxes us. It's everything else as well. Well, then how do lifestyle trends affect data scores? Lifestyle trends are, are huge in, in what we see with the data. You know, obviously we we look at what's going on when guys are either going to fires or just their cumulative stress scores in the firehouse. Uh, but we see similar stress scores when a guy has a newborn baby when they're getting up several times a night. <laughs> we see similar stress scores when a guy went out for a few drinks the night before. Right. Mm-hmm. What we want to try to get across is that what we do outside of work affects what we do at work. Right. This is a, a holistic sort of endeavor. We're trying to show people that that doing these different things. I'm not saying we shouldn't have babies or go out for drinks, you know. <laughs> but I'm saying that uh, that we, you know we lost half our audience <laughs> right now. No babies, no alcohol. <laughs> I, I just what we want to try to show people is that everything you do matters, right? Every everything you do plays some sort of toll on your body, right? Again, twenty four runs in twenty four hours might have similar stress scores as going out for a night of drinks, and that's it's fine. I'm not saying you can't do that, but I just want you to be aware that you know the, a lot of these devices when they see that you know you even, even if you've gotten eight hours of sleep after a night of drinking, your recovery scores are zero. Mm-hmm. You know you, you have very very it's, it's very hard to recover. The, the kind of sleep that you're getting is isn't even recognized as sleep mm-hmm. by a lot of these devices. You, you, we've seen some heart rate trends where people after a night of drinking were still in their sleep hitting heart rates of 120 beats per minute. Wow. You know I don't even know how that happens. Right. But it's uh, it, it's crazy to watch. So just again. 
a lot of the things, and, and, and one of the cool things about these devices is that as you as you experiment with it, as you see what happens after a night of drinking, as you see what happens after running a marathon, or you see what happens after a hard workout, what your resiliency scores are, what your recovery scores are, you start to get a picture about how your body responds in different ways. And so if you use one of these devices, you can really start to get a good idea about what what your limits are, what buttons you should be pushing, when you should be pushing them. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good way to kind of figure out, you know, this uh, this puzzle that is the human body, right? Fitness is an, an experiment on yourself. And these devices are a great way to kind of like con- use control groups on yourself and wow. see and see what what is affecting what parts of your body and how it's affecting yourself. I like that perspective. I think I could use that. <laughs> Recovery is such a challenge for many people. So how can we improve upon it? Uh, recovery is, is is one of the most important things in athletics, and it's something that's that's entirely misunderstood by most people. Again, I mentioned that you know, like one of the worst things that ever happened to fitness was you know the Rocky movies, where everyone thinks they need to just like go full bore all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your recovery is absolutely paramount. So the way the way in fitness works is you you damage your muscles and then you recover. You damage, recover, damage, mm-hmm. recover, and then the, as you do that, your muscles get stronger and bigger and and, and more adapted to its its task. Uh, the ways that we need to improve upon our recovery, and again, the ways that that we can improve our resiliency after fires or after after busy night tours or after whatever, uh, is is through again just consistent sleep. You know, uh, if you maintain uh, your, your your healthy eating habits, you know, making sure you're getting in high nutrient dense foods. You know, these things are are all all part of this holistic experience that that will improve upon us as tactical athletes. You know, the more the more we recover, the 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 better our nutrition, the better our hydration. You know, if if we if we take all these things into consideration, our resiliency scores will go through the roof. You'll you'll recover from tours faster, you'll recover from fire fa- fires faster, you'll recover from workouts faster. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you're just going to be a better, bigger, stronger, healthier person. So as you mentioned, this project is in its infancy. And from what we gather, it's the first of its kind to measure the rigors placed on tactical athletes, namely firefighters at so many different real world fires and emergencies. What are you most excited about as you think about the data set growing and the scope of the project? One of the things I think we're most excited about uh, as as things continue to change is uh, as the data sets continue to grow, as we get more people volunteering to submit their data, uh, we have more of a pool of people from which we can draw. Uh, I think going forward, watching resiliency and watching the way people respond from both fires, from workouts, and and maybe comparing the two, you know, if, if we can measure how somebody recovers from some sort of workout and we we can then predict how somebody recovers from say going to a fire right and then we can use those as tools to say all right here's how fast you recovered after doing xyz workout you know we would like that to be you know so, somehow stronger right mm-hmm. uh, if we can use these these resiliency scores to kind of say here's what an ideal resiliency score is we can again start to shift training schedules we can shift the ways people train to uh, again just to optimize their performance at fires it's exciting. I, yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time. Yeah. You know, this, this whole uh, leadership under fire, uh, the mental performance initiative, all these things are, are, uh, it's never been done in the fire service before, and to uh, be a part of this is, is, is fantastic. It's really exciting to see um, how this is going and where, where it's going to go in the future. I wish I knew what your heart rate score was, like sitting at the first MPI course, right? Because I'm sure, like feeling like your worlds are colliding. That's a nice. It was um, it was fun. It was it was a real it, it, yes. It was just <laughs> it was fun. It was fun to see that 
happen, right? Just to kind of that 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 realization that again, my my athletic world and my 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 career, my firefighting world were kind of converging in one. It was really exciting to see. Actually, the the first time I ever spoke about the uh, firefighting, or sorry, the first time I ever spoke about biometric data in, mm-hmm. in front of an audience, uh, I saw, I was wearing a heart rate meter. Mm-hmm. During the talk, uh, and I actually started off. My heart rate was 120 beats per minute, just just to start the talk, which of course was the the psychological stress that I was incurring from being up in front of a group full of people. You know, having never done this talk before, mm-hmm. uh, it seemed you know it came down as as, as, as time as time wore on, my heart rate came back down. But it's uh, it's it's just it's always interesting to track how, for me at least, it's it's always fun to track how how your body is responding to different to different things. Right. Listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Tim and realize how articulate he is, it's because he hosts his own podcast, and I highly recommend it. I subscribe. Do you want to tell our listeners about your show? Uh, my show is called uh, The Personal Record Podcast, which is all about uh, running and, and triathlon. So I just interview a bunch of uh, people that I've, I've gotten to know over the years and, and some people that I don't know particularly well uh, and just ask them about what, why they do the sport, why, why they do this thing that's incredibly hard in their, in their spare time when they could just be sitting on a couch. Well, it's super informative. So thank you for producing that and sharing that. With thank everyone. you for listening. Yeah. You're you're one of like four now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's more than that. <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be here today to discuss all of this. And I would love to have you back on the show in the future. Hopefully we'll have more to dive into. So thanks so much for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for doing a great job on this podcast. It's It's fun to listen to. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.